This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. till 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment WNUR. 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated, in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com. Thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beware.theradio.com. And we're now airing on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station for the University of Winnipeg. And if you'd like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or community radio station, email us at chuck at com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. The overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court has sparked protests across the United States and around the world by women who want to want access to reproductive health care. But not all of those women are affected equally by the Supreme Court's decision. As today's guest writes, the Supreme Court's disastrous abortion decision is going to affect many, many women, white, cis, het, middle-class women like me and our children very much included. But we are still free from some of the most nightmarish intersections constituted by racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia together with gender. Some protests may see this as a criminalizing of protests, which will now in some states be the target of police surveillance. But for women of color and those in poverty, their pregnancies have long been criminalized and surveilled while facing scrutiny in courtrooms. The reasons given by the anti-abortion movement for the criminalization and scrutiny of women's bodies in particular those of black, trans, poor, and disabled women, include the defense of all life. Yet the actions of the anti-abortion movement put many people's lives in danger. They say it's their religious belief, and it may be individually, but anti-abortion is not a position held by all faiths. In a few minutes, we will be discussing what seems to be the real driving forces behind the anti-abortion movement, namely privilege and social control, when we have the return of philosopher Kate Mann, who wrote the article Criminalizing Pregnant People, A Brief Retrospective When Pregnant People's Bodies Are Policed, the most vulnerable and marginalized among us suffer disproportionately, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. And you should be subscribing to Kate Mann's writing at katemann.substack.com. Show your support for her work because her work is truly exceptional. Kate was on the show back in November of 2017 when we talked about her book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Listeners selected Kate's book as one of their favorites to be featured on This Is Hell that year. Uh, her most recent book is 2020's Entitled, which we'll be discussing today. The entire title is entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. Kate is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University, where she has taught since 2013. Before that, she did her graduate work at MIT and was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. Kate has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, Times Literary Supplement, and Politico, among other publications. She was recently named one of the world's top ten thinkers by Prospect, 
Britain's leading monthly current affairs journal. You can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate underscore man. That's M-A-N-N-E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, are you fully recovered from COVID? Yeah, I'd call it fully recovered, but it was it was pretty hairy for a second there, Chuck. How was it? What was it like? I've seen how I hopefully have not had COVID yet. It was just awful. It wasn't subtle. You wouldn't miss it, um, for me anyway. Um, you still sound a little haggard. Yeah, that, that might be. That might be the case. I don't know. It could just be my lifestyle. <laughs> but it, it came on really quick, and like I was, I was gasping legitimately for no air. No kidding. Like I, I sounded like a cartoon that was sick, just gasping for every breath. For about four hours, I had um, copped some Paxlovid. So maybe that kicked in for about four hours from eight to, to midnight. I was I was knocked out and I couldn't move and I was breathing real hard. And then all of a sudden, it, maybe the Paxlovid kicked in. I don't know. I'm a lot better now. That was, that was like 10 days ago. And what about uh, your wife? Was it as bad for her? She was quarantining. I was lucky. I got a second, right? So she could help me. Um, I don't think she had it that bad, but she was definitely also quite sick, like top five in your life sick did you figure out how uh, you two contacted it yeah i think we got it out there in colorado everybody was partying without masks oh really out there colorado way <laughs> it's, not, it's not a thing out there and that's what's scary it's like well that's just the message i'm getting from my environment is this is how it's going to be so am i just going to get this every six months like that's not something i want to happen again yeah in the front page of the new york times today there's an article about how the uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of more variants yep. that are coming up soon, and there's not the boosters aren't going to be covering it. So. I read that. That was really scary. That's a very frightening article. Mm-hmm. Speaking of scary things, how about yesterday and the mass shooting in Highland Park? Yeah, that, terrifying. That was horrible, and I don't know if you know about this or not, but at one point they were speculating that his motivation, the shooter's motivation, was anti-Semitism. I hadn't seen that. So they uh, closed off a lot of the neighborhood here. Over on Devon in California, there's a high Jewish population. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, Jewish uh, educational institutions over there, and uh, they closed off that whole area. There were tons of police in the neighborhood for a while because they thought that he might be coming this way. They didn't know what yeah, was going on. Yeah, they didn't on. have him until this morning. He was on the loose. That was very frightening yesterday. Right. Really horrible for all the people out there. Just awful. My weekend was uh, three straight days of 24-7 paranoia, nothing but fear that I would catch COVID. Of course, we've all been scared to some degree when it comes to contracting the potentially deadly virus but over the past few days i have been afraid more afraid than at any time since the virus made landfall here in the states back in january of 2020 that's because this thursday july 7th at uh, 1:30 in the afternoon at long last after nearly four months of suffering i'm finally going to have the last surgery in the process of addressing my chronic digestive disorder that is unless i test positive for covid today And if I do test positive shortly after today's show, when I get tested, they will have to reschedule my surgery, which means that I would have to continue this horrible suffering for at least a couple more months. So my entire weekend, I was freaking out about testing positive. And I'll have a little bit more about to say about that following our guest. But more important than any of that, Dan, do we have a question from Elliot this week? I haven't even checked. Yeah, we do. It's, what are you blowing up in honor of America? <laughs> what are you blowing up in honor of America? That's right. Uh, so if you do have an FBI file right now, you probably might not want to expand it with really clear details. And if you don't have an FBI file right now, you will in the very near future. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Elliot at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 
slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email Chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, Dan will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Kate on the criminalizing of pregnancy and the ways in which male privilege informs the politics of abortion. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, they will receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, our coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the winter hat, and everybody's favorite, the trucker's cap. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Dan has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is hot soup, like kanji or jock. LifestyleAsia.com posted a story headlined, How to Cure Your Hangover in Bangkok. They claim hot soup and kanji are your best friends. Hands down, one of the best ways to make you feel better is to get some hot soup down your throat. It has carbs, contains protein, and is full of water to help your body regain balance. Plus, the feeling of warmth going down your system and the smell of spices can help you perk right up and be ready for the day. Lifestyle Asia adds, Many choose kanji for its versatility, and some go for jock, which is extremely digestive. It's up to your preference which hot soup you want, but the old trick is to put some black pepper in for a little kick. It's aromatic, combats cold, and helps with energy. We've suggested kanji as a hangover cure in the past. FearlessEating.net states Thai kanji is porridge, but made with rice instead of oats. The rice is cooked for an extended period of for an extended period in water or broth until it breaks down and forms a porridge-like consistency. And second, unlike oatmeal, which is which in America is usually sweetened to death, kanjis are usually savory. However, we have not offered jock as a hangover cure. Jock is hot rice porridge topped with sliced green onions, with pepper and century egg. Century eggs are made from pasteurized or homogenized whole eggs that have been soaked in an alkaline solution (laughs) containing various chemicals such as potassium bicarbonate, sodium carbonate, Sodium hydroxide and or calcium hydroxide. Oh, that sounds delicious. You bet. <laughs> well, that makes this week's hangover cure. If you're in Bangkok, hot soup like kanji or jock. If you woke up with a hangover, how excited would you about be about uh, eating hot soup? I would be confused because I don't drink anymore. Oh, there you go. Good, good for you then. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism if you'd like at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. And if you, if we have your suggested guest on the show, we'll thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest. Listener Ryan wrote to us saying, hey, Chuck, just tuned into your show, randomly searching the radio. Hell yeah, refreshing. I was uh, expecting right-wing trash. Always the eternal skeptic I am. The more I listened, the more I was like, F yeah. Anyway, just reaching out because I thought you might be a good human to strategize with. Regarding an effort I have underway to help people network, people of all stripes, which aims to mitigate the common mainstream propaganda echo chamber effects that are flourishing on most modern virtual networking platforms. Case in point, I was... uh, 
hmm, permaband in a subreddit forum titled Free Thought because two moderators disagreed with my claim that mainstream neoliberal propaganda, CNN et al., uh, effectively does more to hold back progressive change than Fox News. It's like the KKK has always been around. Stop blaming them now as if they're the problem. Sorry to vent. Anyhow, I'm working on a network, and, well, I'm 100% on my own because of my no-compromise attitude and inability to find like-minded people I can trust. I have a couple degrees in engineering and am a fan of Buckminster Fuller and Nikolai Tesla. I don't want any money, just would love some support and to build a network that caters to true champions of freedom, and I thought you would be a good person to chat with. I've I've put in a good thousand hours on the project already, so I wouldn't call it some pie-in-the-sky idea. I'm really just trying to make an activity network and to depoliticize relations. I call myself a playground politics adherent. Shut up and throw the damn dodgeball already. We really have more in common than not. Anyhow, cheers, great show, best wishes on upcoming medical concerns. Good vibes your way, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan, and I appreciate the invitation, but with my upcoming surgery, and thanks for the kind words on that as well, recovery and much-needed vacation, and then preparing for our upcoming 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party happening on Saturday, September 17th, and doing all the shows up until then, I have very little free time. That said, if anyone is interested in such a project with Ryan, email me at chuckatthisishell.com, and we'll do everything we can to facilitate such a conversation. And one other thing, I do not know where Ryan heard This Is Hell other than he heard it on the radio. We're now on four of over-the-air stations and one online radio station as BewareTheRadio.com calls itself. However, this is why being on the radio is so important to us. The likelihood that someone will randomly stumble upon our show is far greater than it is when it, or when it is being broadcast over the air as opposed to being narrowcast online where listeners are far more likely to seek out our show or have an algorithm suggest us. So if you work with a community radio station or have a favorite station where you live, contact us at chuckatthisishell.com and we will do our best to get on air where you live and who knows who will stumble upon us then. It could be your mom or dad or your kids or your fascist uncle or your commie aunt or that cousin who loves Joe Biden or that other cousin who loves Trump. Again, you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com and if you do, We'll likely read your email on air, and we'll have more of your emails following our guest. Coming up, abortion, criminalization, male privilege, and social control in the United States. We'll have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And I believe we're going to have an episode of Seb Soapbox when producer Sebastian Vupper steps back into and through history to provide historical context on some of today's issues. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Overturning Roe v. Wade has sent shockwaves throughout the United States, but those reverberations are felt differently by different people. While those reverberations may affect us differently, they all resonate with male privilege and attempts at social control. Returning to This Is Hell, philosopher Kate Mann wrote the article Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Again, that's katemann.substack.com. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kate. 
Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. Your most recent book is 2020's entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women, and people can find out more about you at your website, kateman.net, and follow you on Twitter at Kate underscore man. I want to read a little excerpt from your article at Substack to start off. Uh, You write that the Supreme Court's disastrous abortion decision is going to affect many, many women, white, cis, hat, middle-class women like me, like yourself, and our children, very much included, but we are still free from some of the most nightmarish intersections constituted by racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia together with gender. You then quote a past guest on our show, the legal theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, writing in a 1989 paper on this nightmarish intersection, suggesting that we think of a traffic intersection. She wrote, the point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination like traffic through an intersection may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. So you also add, similarly, if a black woman is uh, harmed, her injury could result from sex discrimination, race discrimination, or a combination of the two, as in the phenomenon of misogynoir. More broadly, the intersections between gender and other oppressive systems work against pregnant people of color in general and black and indigenous ones, as well as poor folks in particular. It's worth remembering this as some are becoming uh, or bemoaning a return to the pre-Roe era and others fear an even worse future. Both of these views, while capturing something important, also miss another vital fact to bear in mind here. Criminalizing pregnancy has long been a reality for the most marginalized pregnant people in this country. How is overturning Roe criminalizing pregnancy generally? And how, prior to overturning Roe, were the most marginalized already criminalized with their pregnancies? Mm, That's a great question. So here I'm relying on some really wonderful work um, on a grim topic by the legal scholars and advocates, Lynn Paltrow and Gian Flavin. So what they've done is developed this concept of reproductive oppression. And they're theorizing cases where pregnancy was a necessary condition for someone being physically restricted in their liberty by the legal system. And that can involve things like incarceration, arrests, um, increases in jail and prison time, but also things like being detained in hospital, mental institutions, and uh, forced into treatment programs, um, as well as forced medical interventions. So what these researchers found was that there is a vastly disproportionate number of women of color, especially Black women and Indigenous women, and poor women who have been subject to this form of reproductive oppression by the state, where they are, you know, sometimes held captive by the state um, because of their pregnancy and the state's perception that they're not a quote-unquote fit mother. Um, So we have cases of people being uh, perceived Uh, rightly or in some cases wrongly as a drug user and that being used as a pretext for holding that there is a huge risk to the fetus. In many cases, there wasn't a huge risk. Um, For example, for for 
cocaine use that was involved in many of these cases, that's been shown not to be more risky than something that is perfectly legal in pregnancy, namely nicotine use. And yet we have poor and black women being arrested and in some cases incarcerated for years for um, effectively uh, perceptions that they were endangering their fetus during pregnancy. And in reality, in these cases, um, these people had undergone uh, tragedies like uh, a stillbirth for a wanted pregnancy in some cases. Uh, in other cases, they had had a miscarriage. Um, in some cases, an infection that led to miscarriage. And the result of which was a pregnant person being um, incarcerated or at least arrested um, in ways that restrained their physical liberty. So the criminalization of poor and black pregnant bodies has been ongoing in this country for decades and decades. And the paper that you cite is from 2013 by uh, mm -hmm. Paltrow and Flavin. And we all know that from 2013 up until the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there have been uh, more state laws passed, in particular in uh, Mississippi, places like Mississippi, mm -hmm. where there are more and more restrictions had been put on. So do we know were pregnancies being more criminalized during that period of time from the date of this paper in 2013 up until uh, just a few weeks ago when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? Was that criminalization continuing and on a trajectory that was just getting worse and worse for women of color? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, there are two things worth drawing attention to here. So for decades and particularly since that period, since, you know, roughly 2010, I would say there has been a ramping up of restrictions on clinics that perform abortion. So that's one thing worth drawing attention to. Things like um, demanding that clinics have admitting privileges to hospitals, even though that's just not medically necessary. These are known to be incredibly safe procedures. Um, other spurious regulations like requiring that the corridors be a certain width such that you can fit two gurneys side by side in them. Again, not medically or materially necessary restrictions. And so clinics have been shut down using these kinds of pretexts even long before we had the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey. Um, the other thing worth really drawing attention to is you've had a rise in the weaponizing of laws against feticide and fetal homicides um, against pregnant women um, and other pregnant persons, including, of course, uh, trans men, non-binary people, and some intersex people who get pregnant. Um, but these laws were originally designed to protect uh, women and their fetuses from domestic and other forms of violence. But what has happened in some states is that they have been repurposed in order to criminalize the pregnant person themselves. Um, so, for example, in Mike Pence's Indiana, you had uh, two uh, Asian American women, uh, Bebe Shuao and Pervy Patel, who were both the uh, first arrested women under these uh, fetal homicide laws. Um, and also happened to be women of color, which is no accident. Um, so in Pervy Patel's case, which was the one to make headlines, um, there was uh, the, the basic chain of events um, 
was that she had ordered um, pills to self-induce an abortion at 23 or 24 weeks, uh, and um, that is still legal in many states uh, to this day and was certainly protected under Roe v. Wade. Uh, the 24 weeks is considered general, uh, the point of viability. Um, so she self-induced an abortion using abortifacients pro uh, procured online um, and was uh, ultimately sentenced via the repurposing of these laws uh, to 20 years in prison. Um, so an extraordinary penalty for this Asian American woman under um, these uh, punitive weaponization of Indiana's feticide laws. So she ended up serving one year and four months and ultimately her appeal to Indiana's Supreme Court was um, successful, but uh, you know, she was uh, still subject to these enormously draconian penalties. And I would argue that her being a woman of color in this scenario was in no way accidental. How do you think we view pregnancy differently when we understand it as something that courts can intervene in, something that where uh, pregnancy has been criminalized? How do you think we view abortion differently when we understand it as something that's already been, uh, that the actual act of being pregnant has been criminalized? Mm. Well, I think it is a pretext for the state to disproportionately target, as I said, poor women, black women, indigenous women, and other women who are marginalized, um, as well as other people who can get pregnant who are marginalized, um, including trans men, for example. Um, but I also think this is a general expression of misogyny. So as you know, in my work, I have been defining misogyny as the um, metaphorically the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. So that which serves to police and enforce patriarchal norms and expectations. And in a way, the most patriarchal norm and expectation, um, which also intersects with racist expectations, with classist and ableist and transphobic expectations, is that cis white women should get pregnant and have white men's babies to uphold white supremacy. Um, and this expectation is now being very effectively enforced and policed by legal means, as well as social means, by not only um, the legal penalties that are going to ensue for pregnant people who obtain abortions in states where they're banned, uh, but also for those who are um, perceived rightly or wrongly as aiding and abetting this now crime in many states. Um, and it's, it's also just worth noticing the ways in which this um, supports a public discourse that represents a woman's getting pregnant as something morally expected and as kind of natural and even as holy in some religious contexts. So the idea of her then obtaining an abortion is perceived not as her right, as I would argue it absolutely is, but rather as something that violates a kind of natural and moral order. So I think the way that laws are constructing and also reflecting a public discourse that moralizes someone exercising their basic right 
to terminate a pregnancy and not to have their body used in this way against their will. Um, that's also something to which we should be paying attention. So is criminalizing pregnancy then an extension of the criminalization of both race and class? Because that brings into the conversation yes. things like capitalism, neoliberalism, and the need uh, the need for the market to have an exploited underclass. So is criminalizing pregnancy an extension of that criminalization of both race and class? Yes, absolutely. I think that's really apt. I mean, one way of looking at it is that a white supremacist, cisnormative, heteropatriarchy of a you know deeply capitalist kind needs these women to hold up as cautionary tales and examples to tell white women not to terminate a pregnancy. So we see women like Pervy Patel, whose example I just went into um, in Indiana, being held up as a cautionary tale because she can be in effect uh, exploited, even disposed of by incarcerating her and using her brown pregnant body um, as, yeah, a cautionary tale to white women not to seek an abortion, let alone self-induce an abortion. So, um, yeah, this is a kind of deeply exploitative way of treating the women whose bodies white supremacy doesn't care about, that is poor and um, Black and Indigenous women, as well as other women of colour, um, yeah, as uh, ultimately disposable, according to this um, horrific white supremacist as well as misogynistic logic. How aware do you think the public is of pregnancy being criminalized and how it already was disproportionately criminalized for marginalized poor women of color before Roe was overturned? Do you think the issue is just simply a matter of a lack of information to the public or a lack of the ability of the media or politicians to make the public aware of the criminalizing of pregnancy? Well, it's interesting, Chuck. I mean, one reason why I wrote this piece as a white woman is that there's a kind of general perception that after Roe, we were in this golden age, a you know, roughly 50-year period that was interrupted by Dobbs. And I think that's a real misperception um, that we were in a kind of golden age for women's freedoms and that uh, Dobbs represents a straightforward step back to what had been straightforward social progress. Now, of course, uh, Roe was really, really important. And uh, I wouldn't at any um, level want to suggest that Dobbs wasn't a massive step back. But it's important to be clear about the fact that there were still many people who even when Roe prevailed were in fact subject to criminalization and the enforcement of their pregnancies, and also state interventions like, for example, for C-sections. So you saw um, in some of the research uh, that was done by uh, Flavin and Paltrow, the, um, the fact that women whose bodies were subject to this suspicion and uh, who were particularly vulnerable to state intervention we're sometimes forced to do things like undergo emergency C-sections for non-emergency situations where, for example, the person wanted to uh, try to deliver vaginally and um, was actually forced to undergo a C-section, which was very likely not medically necessary, given that they then went on to have 
have successful uh, vaginal births following that C-section. Um, and yeah, there's just a level of state intrusion and interference into the bodies of certain pregnant people that has been ongoing even since Roe. Um, not via so much the legal system being directly criminalizing pregnant bodies, but through the weaponization of laws that were never intended to have this purpose. Um, so, you know, we had uh, laws against, say, uh, child abuse and neglect being repurposed in many of these cases to um, criminalize uh, the bodies, again, of poor and uh, disproportionately women of color when they weren't, um, those laws were never intended to be uh, state oversight into pregnancy, but were used for that purpose by overzealous prosecutors, police officers, judges, and juries. One more question about your writing at kateman.substack.com. You cite Paltrow and Flavin warning, quote, far from being a scare tactic, our findings confirm that if passed personhood measures not only would provide a basis for recriminalizing abortion, again, this is in 2013, they would also provide grounds for depriving all pregnant women of their liberty. In other words, start to recognize a fetus as a full person under the law, and you are well on your way to criminalizing pregnant people, the most marginalized ones especially. Do you believe that is the next step of the anti-abortion movement, personhood for the unborn? Because that reminds me of the writing of another past guest on our show, on back in 2012. 20, uh, Jennifer L. Howland, who wrote the book Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. Is that the next step of the anti-abortion movement to give, like corporations have personhood, that mm -hmm. the unborn will be a person? Yes, I think that's absolutely the next step. I mean, we've seen that this has been very, very deliberately engineered, um, this idea of personhood in order to criminalize abortion. It's not that people legally... Um, were convinced that the fetus was a legal person and then decided, oh, you know, this makes trouble for abortion rights. It was very much the opposite with figures like um, an old favorite of ours, Andy Puzder, Trump's pick for Labor secretary, who came up with this idea in Missouri, um, this idea of fetal personhood as a powerful weapon in order to um, criminalize anyone who would seek out their basic moral entitlement to control their own uh, reproductive future. So I think that's one thing that we're going to, to see in many, many states. Um, and along with it, it's just worth reflecting on the fact that it is so convenient, and you know this has even become a common meme, but it is so convenient to advocate for fetal persons because they have no voice, uh, certainly no uh, heartbeat at the point at which uh, so-called heartbeat laws kick in at six or eight weeks. Um, there is a mere pulsating of tissue that will eventually uh, be cardiac tissue that is specializing to be cardiac. So these um, clumps of cells, as I think it's appropriate to say, have no voice, no interests of their own, no sentience until at least week 27, that is the third trimester of pregnancy when very few abortions are performed, um, less than 1%, and those are performed for often dire medical emergencies. Um, and uh, there is this 
advocacy for a group that of people that don't exist. And, it, you know, that's great because they won't demand anything. They have no voice to ask for anything and they don't require anything um, until the babies are actually born, a point at which the majority of conservatives show a marked disinterest in things like, you know, even ensuring that there is formula available for those parents who need it to feed their babies, you know, ensuring adequate health care for children, ensuring clean water for children, ensuring that, you know, things like school lunch programs uh, continue, which, you know, has, of course, been decimated in the states, combating childhood hunger in other ways, ensuring vaccines to protect children. Um, you know, I could go on about the ways in which there are massive contradictions and signs of hypocrisy within the so-called pro-life in reality anti-choice movement. Um, but this is, of course, familiar territory. But just to emphasize again that the invention of a fetal person allows you to moralize about and criminalize pregnant people who are perceived as neglecting and somehow uh, betraying this person who doesn't exist. My sense of it all is that they're actually much more upset about uh, a perceived neglect and betrayal of cis men in society and that the fetus becomes this convenient entity onto which to project this sense of uh, women's having neglected and betrayed men and not done their duties vis-a-vis -vis the family, the nuclear family. Um, so yeah, we'll see uh, a rise in claims of fetal personhood and uh, that will demand nothing from the advocates for fetal persons and it will have a detrimental effect on the people whose bodies will thus be criminalized and moralized about endlessly, um, providing again another outlet for the misogyny that we're seeing running rampant in this country. And we'll get to that uh, uh, point that you make in your writing about notional personhood in just a moment. Again, from your uh, Substack writing, as well as from what you were just saying, laws never intended to punish pregnant people were repurposed for that end by overzealous police, prosecutors, judges, and juries. So this brings us to your uh, 2020 book entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women when you write uh, on May 14th, 2019, 25 white Republicans, all men, voted to pass the most restrictive abortion bill in the United States had seen in decades in the state of Alabama. The bill was signed into law the following day by a white woman, Kate Ivey, Alabama's Republican governor. The law was ultimately blocked in federal court, but if it had gone into effect as planned that November, again, back in 2019, it would have criminalized abortions in the state, banning the procedure in almost every instance including in cases of rape and incest. And this just mm -hmm. brings me to the very basic uh, question of how politically effective and popular is criminalizing pregnant women? And to you, what explains the popularity of punitive policies towards pregnancy? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the issue of white women who have been behind these kinds of bans and punitive laws. I think, you know, part of this is about being perceived as kind of generally tough on quote unquote crime. Um, and part of this is about the kind of enforcement of a normative notion of good womanhood in particular, the idea that good women are the ones who, you know, get pregnant willingly, 
nurture the fetus unquestioningly at any stage, no matter what their financial and you know other features of their material situation, and then raise their children in a selfless and unassisted fashion. Um, and enforcing that legally, I think, has the potential to be popular with groups that are incredibly moralistic about this notion of normative, generally white womanhood in general. We are speaking with Kate Mann, who wrote the article Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Her most recent book is entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. You can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate underscore man. And you can find out more about Kate at her website, kateman.net. You write so-called heartbeat bills, which seek to ban abortion after the point at which cardiac activity in the embryo can be detected, were engineered by one such conservative white woman, as you were describing earlier, Janet Porter. Porter's chief contribution to the anti-abortion movement has been to further moralize abortion by depicting those who would choose to have one as cruel, callous, and unfeeling. What does it say about the debate over reproductive uh, accessibility, uh, reproductive health care accessibility, when both sides see the other as acting cruelly? When punishing, uh, mm-hmm. criminalizing pregnant women and exercising reproductive rights is seen as cruel as though by those who are anti-abortion, what, what is the impact on a debate when both sides see the other as immoral, and cruel. How does that affect that debate? Yeah, well, I think it provides a good opportunity to distract us um, on the left from the very real cruelties that are taking place to actual people, such as the 10-year-old who was the victim of rape in Ohio and is currently carrying her rapist fetus and is going to have to travel to another state in order to get an abortion at 10 years old. Um, I mean, it's just unconscionable cruelty, but in order to kind of compete with that obvious and very real cruelty, conservatives such as um, the aforementioned Janet Porter have effectively invented this notional baby who exists very early in pregnancies, which is, you know, a complete myth Um, at uh, six to eight weeks the idea that there is a heart uh, or a heartbeat is, you know, it's all completely a misnomer. Um, This is six or eight weeks dating from someone's last menstrual period. At that stage, there's no heart, no brain, no face. There's not even a fetus. Um, An embryo makes that transition at around week nine or 10, as you know. And at six weeks, the embryo is roughly the size of a green pea. Um, Now, this so-called heartbeat is actually just a pulsing of cells specializing to become cardiac that may or may not be detectable. Um, And in some pregnancies, that activity won't be uh, detectable until significantly later. But it's meant to tug on the heartstrings. It's meant to make us think and imagine and envision, envision a baby, not a small clump of cells with um, some cells that are specializing to become cardiac, but nothing resembling an organ like the heart and certainly no ability to feel pain, um, no thoughts, no feelings. Uh, I hope it's obvious to say at that stage um, and uh, 
no good reason absent a very specialized and metaphysically committal package deal not to have a termination, not to have an abortion if you're pregnant and do not wish to be. You quote President Donald Trump during a campaign rally in Wisconsin saying that, quote, the baby is born, the mother meets with the doctor, they take care of the baby, they wrap the baby beautifully, and then the doctor and the mother determine whether or not they will execute the baby. You point out this is an outright lie. Whether it's the fetal heartbeat or the story that Trump told, which you call an outright lie, how dependent is the success of the anti-abortion movement on misleading statements or even fear-mongering? How important are misleading statements and fear to the success of the anti-abortion movement? Yeah, I would say highly. I mean, this kind of thing simply does not happen. What One thing that, you know, just to reiterate, we know is that those people who have abortions during the third trimester are a very, very small minority of those people who seek abortions, less than 1% of abortions fit into this category. And it's because of conditions that are generally incompatible with the life of the fetus and the person carrying the fetus highly understandably does not wish to have to carry a dead or dying or soon to be stillborn child um, into existence often with effects that will be incredibly hard on their body, that will ravage their body for no good reason if they carry um, the fetus to term and rather than seeking the kind of abortion care that is, again, very rarely necessary, but is sometimes necessary um, in the third trimester. But yeah, this image of cruelly uh, aborting or executing babies, it's the kind of thing that is designed to uh, get at people's emotions, to be emotive, and to make people feel like the women doing this are heartless monsters rather than people exercising their moral right, sometimes under heartbreaking circumstances, sometimes under circumstances that are just uh, not wishing to have a child. Um, As I've written about in my Substack, um, as actually the first post on the day that Dobbs was announced. Uh, you know, I had an abortion simply because at that point in my life, at age, I think I was 32, maybe 33, I did not want to have a child. And that's enough. That is enough to assert the moral right not to, especially when we're talking about in almost all of those circumstances, very, uh, you know, early abortions, early in the piece. Um, in my case, at about eight weeks, um, eight or 10 weeks, depending on, Uh, You know, these things are often not easy to calculate precisely. But um, yeah, the extraordinary cruelty of anti-abortion, the anti-abortion movement is meant to be obscured by these completely false and spurious images of babies being um, aborted and executed in circumstances that simply don't happen. You also point out that many of the Republicans who support these bans also support the death penalty a day after signing the most extreme anti-abortion legislation in the United States into law in Alabama. 
uh, again back in 2019, K. Ivey, Governor K. Ivey declined to grant reprieve to a man sitting on death row. He was subsequently executed. Another man who has a cognitive disability awaits a similarly uh, a terrible death at the time of mm-hmm. writing due to uh, be delivered via lethal injection. And you also mentioned the controversy around ectopic pregnancies, uh, generally agonizing, painful, almost never viable, and require urgent medical attention. And that can lead to uh, death by the, the mother dying as well as the child being stillborn. So to you, what explains this contradiction when it comes to life? What does it reveal about conservatism in the United States? when it wants small government, except when it comes to uh, that same government determining who lives and who dies. Why be anti-state intervention? Why be pro-life, except when it comes to the most important moral decision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we have to really hold on to the fact that this is not about protecting life. It is about controlling women. It is about controlling women's bodies and will also have a terrible impact on anyone who can get pregnant, including not just cis women, but also trans men, trans boys, cis girls, non-binary people, and intersex people who can also get pregnant in some cases. Um, So what we have is this, um, you know, willingness to have pregnant people with ectopic pregnancies get into emergency situations and potentially die rather than perform the abortions that are medically necessary in all of these instances. Um, We're already seeing people being denied the um, medication uh, methotrexate, which is um, sometimes used to uh, uh, terminate an ectopic pregnancy, even when people need methotrexate for a huge variety of medical conditions. Um, including things like autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease. So we're seeing this refusal to terminate ectopic pregnancies until it is a life or death situation resulting in absolutely needless suffering. And in no situation is this going to result in preserving the life of the um, fetus that is simply not viable in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. You know, similarly, we're seeing uh, these Republicans that are incredibly supposedly pro-life, except as you point out, they're also in favor of the death penalty. They show absolutely no interest in, you know, the poor quality of food and water that is available to many children. They're not interested in improving the astonishingly high maternal mortality rates in this country, particularly for Black, Indigenous, um, and disproportionately poor women. And they're not interested in healthcare. They're not interested in police violence against uh, Black and Brown folks. They're not interested in life simpliciter. Again, they're interested in controlling the bodies of women because of our perceived moral violations of a patriarchal white supremacist order. You point to an important series of papers legal scholars Linda Greenhouse and Rava B. Siegel have shown that the contemporary anti-abortion movement in the United States had its roots in the AAA strategy spearheaded prior to the Roe v. Wade decision. The idea was to recruit Americans who had traditionally voted Democrat to the Republican Party by stressing the supposed moral threat of ACID, LSD, 
uh, amnesty for so-called draft dodgers from the Vietnam War, and finally abortion envisaged as a threat to the nuclear family. So mm-hmm. is abortion simply, uh, an, is the anti-abortion movement, is, is that simply a political strategy? I think so. I mean, this is much more an astroturf movement than a grassroots one. So prior to um, roughly uh, 1972, um, when this strategy was deliberately engineered, the triple A strategy was designed to help Nixon win um, over the Democratic frontrunner, George McGovern. And this is, of course, a year prior to Roe. Abortion was much less controversial amongst white evangelicals. Um, However, the AAA strategy was deliberately designed to get people to vote against their interests. Poor white folks, especially white evangelicals, had to be goaded into voting Republican rather than Democrat. Um, And so this strategy, you know, which was meant to help Nixon win, effectively moralized abortion and associated abortion, not with murder initially, um, that wasn't on the table, it was associated with a breakdown in the nuclear family. So these social issues were meant to paint McGovern as someone who was um, not good when it came to social morality and who would be in effect encouraging drug takers, draft dodgers and uh, feckless women Uh, advancing their careers rather than having a husband, children, and the traditional, supposedly traditional uh, nuclear family in the white um, evangelical South. So uh, the strategy was incredibly effective in creating a sense that abortion was immoral in particular, um, where, yeah, this wasn't something that cropped up organically from religion. That's a common misconception. Um, This was a tiny piece of um, generally, uh, you know, very conservative Catholic lore that was extracted and used deliberately to manipulate white evangelicals. And you write that this is not to say that women are thereby perceived as subhuman creatures, non-human animals, or even mere vessels. Indeed, a woman's humanity is conceptually crucial to the whole enterprise. What she Mm -hmm. is supposed to give to men here is elsewhere is a distinctively human service. She is not just supposed to have the child in the style of The Handmaid's Tale as an exercise in human breeding. She is meant to care for the child afterward in a self-effacing manner and far in excess of the expectations placed on her male counterparts. But even if her humanity is not in doubt, it is perceived as owed to others. She is positioned not as a human being, but rather as a human giver of reproductive as well as emotional labor, material support, and sexual gratification, insofar as her male partner wants these, and he, and he correspondingly is deemed entitled to take those goods from her as a matter of his birthright. So not only that, but to, you know, to the women are expected to provide all of these services mm-hmm. as non-waged labor. It's supposed to be done for free. And, and as you point out, it's an un- unlikely that men are brought up when discussing abortion as it is to discuss wages when considering the social reproduction of human service and human giving that is expected from women is reproductive choice, the ultimate expression of women having or gaining control over their own labor, if you will, is being pro-choice mm-hmm 
taking control of your own labor? And is that the culture change that the anti-abortion movement does not want to see, women taking control over their own work, wages, and labor, if you will? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, one way to conceptualize this is under white supremacist uh, heteropatriarchy, women are perceived as owing so many forms of labor to white cis men in particular, and also indirectly to the state. So that includes reproductive labor, it includes material labor, it includes emotional labor. And all of these forms of labor are something that feminists tell us and have long told us don't belong to anyone but the person whose labor it is. Um, you know, she ought to be truly free to extend her labor in any direction. Um, and that is something that, you know, is still a radical message and is still attracting an enormous amount of anti-feminist as well as racist backlash in this country, among others. So I think viewing women as not so much, you know, dehumanized by these laws and these policies, but rather perceived as bad humans, as bad human givers who should be giving our labor to cis men, particularly white cis men, and to the state. Um, that is something which these anti-choice laws are designed to police and enforce. And you write that we can therefore conceptualize the anti-abortion movement as one of many misogynistic enforcement mechanisms designed to compel women's caregiving. A woman is not to opt out of the uh, role of motherhood that the AAA strategy implicitly underlined. When she is pregnant, her habits of consumption will be subject to vigorous cultural policing, notwithstanding the evidence that the occasional alcoholic beverage say is unlikely to be harmful. When she contemplates childbirth, so-called natural, that is vaginal, unmedicated birth, will be lionized for far in excess of the evidence of its benefits, either for her or for the infant. And once she has an infant, she will be deemed obligated not only to care for the child with utter selfless devotion, but also to do so in a very specific manner. Consider the uh, pressure to breastfeed, for example, which massively outstrips the evidence or likely magnitude of its benefits in contexts where clean water is available for formula as an alternative. So is the targeting of pregnant women uh, with scrutiny, is that socially acceptable? Is it morally acceptable to judge pregnant women as well as mothers of young children? And does that scrutiny increase if you are a person of, uh, a person of color or poor or both? Because I think that's, you know, mm -hmm. everybody's always saying, and I, I disagree with this entirely, that there are, uh, there's consumer activism, that there are individual acts that you can do in order to help out whatever the cause is. Is the individual act we can do, is it to not be, not be socially accepting of this scrutiny of pregnant women and women who have infants? Yeah, I mean, I think it will help. It will be grossly insufficient, as you point out, to combat these enormous structural and systemic forms of injustice. But yeah, I think it is important to see the criminalizing and policing of pregnant bodies as on a continuum with policing and enforcing women's care in general. So, you know, the notion that she must uh, breastfeed, but also she must never breastfeed in public and she must breastfeed for 
you know, whatever length of time is currently socially sanctioned, maybe 12 months, and then she must never breastfeed a, a you know, a drop of milk after that, um, you know, after that date. Uh, the idea that there are these incredibly specific forms of care that uh, women must provide lest their children suffer these enormous harms is it's a great way to police and control women, not just their bodies, but also our minds to have us totally preoccupied with, you know, how we raise our children, completely forgetting the fact that as I'm rapidly discovering as now a mother myself, children are actually very resilient and flexible. And there are umpteen forms of raising children well that work for different people in different familial and social arrangements and you know oftentimes it is you know quite fine to do things in a variety of different ways but if you are a pluralist about it if you let a thousand flowers bloom and also recognize that raising a child actually does take a village um, you know, it takes a lot of social and material support uh, all around someone. And for that matter, um, doesn't necessarily even have to involve, let alone center on a cis woman, um, then it becomes, you know, a much less convenient site for social control. Uh, so yeah, if you recognize the reality that there are lots of ways to do this and lots of people do it and they do it well, in a variety of ways and family structures and non-familial structures, um, then yeah, that becomes a much less ripe basis for the misogyny that we're seeing um, being so prevalent today. Just a couple more questions for you, Kate. You write that in the case of abortion, it is heart-wrenchingly, it is, it is a heart-wrenchingly vulnerable fetus who might also grow up to be the next Einstein. In the case of bathroom bills, it is preyed upon cis girls or women. These notional victims then serve as a post hoc rationalization for their pre-existing desire to police the supposed moral offenders. So is the anti-abortion movement a movement supporting a morality police? Is morality policing the first step towards morality police? Is that the direction that this country is going with the ruling by the Supreme Court? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because one thing I really want people to think about and understand is the way that misogyny is here actually deeply in cahoots with transphobia and transmisogyny and with anti-trans legislation that is cropping up at a terrifying rate. Um, policing the bodies of cis women you know, it has this way of inventing a notional fetus to be defensive of and awfully upset about. Similarly, in the case of policing trans women's bodies, uh, you see a similar invention of a supposed victim in the case of uh, trans women. Uh, people make up this idea that trans women are preying on cis women in restrooms where, you know, this has almost never happened. This is a non-problem socially. But similarly, you make up a notional victim. It, it, this allows you to moralize certain people's bodies and similarly expresses a sense of entitlement that women's bodies have to have certain body parts and they have to be functioning a particular way and producing a particular kind of entity um, and performing a particular kind of labor in order to be adequate, good women's, women's bodies. Um, so I think cis women and trans women 
are deeply in this together as we both have to resist this kind of moralizing of our bodies and insistence on policing our bodies to a patriarchal, cisnormative, misogynistic end. And you point out that once a mother, she is always a mother, held disproportionately responsible for her emotional, material, and moral needs of those around her in ways that extend well beyond being overtasked with the care of her own children. So as it stands today, in your opinion, is the family, as it is defined and seen today, especially in the United States, a site of inequality? Is the anti-abortion movement interested in addressing threats to that inequality? Are they defending the family as a site of inequality? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to the triple A strategy of 1972, being desperate to uphold a certain, you know, supposedly traditional, though actually historically quite recent image of the nuclear family as moral and holy in a way that is just, again, very convenient for exploiting women's labor within that structure. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, these are bastions of cis male privilege, in effect, that conservatives have long been extremely interested in upholding for the obvious reasons that they are super beneficial for the prime intended beneficiaries of conservative moral and uh, social law. Yeah, namely, you know, white, rich, cis men. You also point out that for those women who have much to gain by abiding by the norms of good womanhood vis-a-vis the values of our white supremacist patriarchy, taking such an anti-abortion position is likely to be especially tempting. So white anti-abortion women women doing so, being anti-abortion for white privilege, is is being anti-abortion then seen as a way of class mobility? Yeah. So... One way of looking at it is that misogyny tends to divide good women, quote unquote, good women by the lights of patriarchal norms and expectations from quote unquote, bad women, where the bad women, are, uh, women who are you know, obtaining abortions, among other things, are not being sufficiently caring or, you know, doing things like um, taking something away from cis male privilege, like having, you know, certain kinds of, um, uh, career paths, certain kinds of, um, you know, desires, plans, intentions. And so one way for white women in particular to really show that they're a quote unquote good woman is by themselves identifying with these norms and expectations within a white supremacist patriarchy and disavowing the kinds of desires that bad women have, like the desire to have an abortion and labeling that bad, immoral, evil, and saying that they're radically, um, quote unquote, uh, uh, pro-life, really meaning anti-choice, in order to align themselves with these white supremacist and patriarchal norms. One last question for you, Kate. We have been speaking with Kate Mann, who wrote the article, Criminalizing Pregnant People, which you can find at katemann.substack.com. Her most recent book is entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. You can follow Kate on Twitter at Kate underscore man. Find out more about Kate at her website, katemann.net. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask you, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. 
you write that a particularly interesting, and, and you were already touching on this, if often missed parallel uh, to the anti-abortion movement is with the anti-trans movement and its fixation on policing the bodies of trans girls and women, including by legal means. Take bathroom bills, which uh, proposed to restrict access to multi-user restrooms, locker rooms, and other historically gender-segregated facilities on the basis of the sex someone was assigned at birth. Bills of this nature have been considered in 16 states in the United States at the time of this writing, which was in 2020. And in 2017, one was passed in North Carolina, though it was subsequently struck down by federal courts. Such legislation would force trans people to use a restroom that does not match their gender identity, subjecting them to potential social humiliation, increased risk of physical attacks, and the prospect of gender gender dysphoria. A recent survey of almost 28,000 transgender people showed that, unsurprisingly, even the routine extra-legal policing of bathroom access has a significant negative impact. Nearly 60% had avoided using a public restroom at least once during the previous year due to a fear of being attacked or confronted. Fear of being attacked or confronted. Fear of intimidation. What you were just talking about, there being good women and bad women does the anti-abortion movement create a perfect setting for the emergence over the past 7, 10, 15 years of the far right and fascism in the United States? Is this a fertile environment? Is the anti-abortion movement a fertile environment for the emergence of fascism? Yeah, I think so. You know, for a long time, I was kind of unsure of what to think about this because, of course, uh, a fascist nation is one that's also a totalitarian one. And I wasn't sure how that, how to think of that in relation to America's weird and to me as an Australian kind of alien brand of libertarianism. Um, but I think we are really undoubtedly seeing the rise of Christian fascism and these kinds of forms of policing are now unapologetic, completely open, um, you know, the banning of books on critical, supposed critical race theory, which, by the way, good luck to anyone teaching critical race theory in the elementary school classroom. I, I teach a seminar on critical race theory, and, you know, it's, it's intended for philosophy grad students and law students. It's, you know, <laughs> the idea that we're teaching this in the, you know, to 10-year-olds is, is absurd, but the banning of books. And, again, the as- astonishing... Um, legislation we're seeing against trans kids, where at the moment in Texas, we have multiple families being investigated by the state, so-called child protective services, um, where trans kids face being taken away from their parents by the state for receiving trans-affirming care. You know, combine that with the rise of abortion bans, I think we are seeing the emergence of Christian fascism for sure. I'm glad that you call it Christian fascism because within the establishment media, there has been some talk of late, finally, about Christian nationalism. But that's mm-hmm. not, I mean, that does define it in a certain a certain extent, but it doesn't go as far as defining it as Christian fascism does. So I really appreciate you calling it what it is, Christian fascism, mm-hmm. which is beyond Christian nationalism. Kate, thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been five years since the last time you were on. It's not going to be five years again in the future. I really appreciate you being back on and everybody should be subscribing to your Substack at kateman.substack.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. And and I just want to say I'm wishing you all the best for your health. I am just in such sympathy and solidarity as someone who is married to someone with Crohn's disease. I um, 
yeah, my heart really goes out to you and I'm just wishing all the best for your upcoming surgery. Um, Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And give my best to your husband as well because, uh, I I mean... (laughs) Rough stuff. Yeah, it's really rough stuff. And uh, I, I, whatever I'm going through right now, uh, it's probably nothing compared to what your husband has. And so I truly appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. And you know I'll be talking to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. If what you just heard from Kate Mann on the criminalizing of pregnancy and the privilege and falsehoods at the heart of the anti-abortion movement. If that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, please show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'll be explaining why in a little bit. And his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support by com- uh, for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, it was all work, 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 or not, depending on if you think what I do, what This Is Hell is, is work or not. And apparently not everyone views my work as work, that doing This Is Hell does not entail any physical or mental effort, that putting the show together is nothing but a pleasurable act of leisure. Uh, some sort of expression of my own privilege. It's, it's not a nine-to-fiver working for the man, so what I do simply cannot be considered work by many. And it's not only crotchety old conservatives who share this opinion, but loyal liberals and Democrats as well, that the work isn't work if you're not being exploited by someone else who owns your time. So my monologue last week was all about work, 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 work. And apparently it must have been kind of good because Patreon subscriber Braden S. wrote to us saying that was one of Chuck's best monologues in my opinion. We appreciate your hard work. Thank you, Braden, and thanks for being a supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon. We also shared an interview from right around the 4th of July, 2008, 14 years earlier when we spoke with Elliot Cohen, who at the time had just posted the Truth Dig article, John McCain's Chilling Project for America. And what better way to celebrate the 4th of July than reminding listeners that uber patriot and ultra American John McCain would have been an absolute nightmare as president of the United States. When we spoke with Elliot, he was the editor in chief of the International Journal of Applied Philosophy and ethics editor for Free Inquiry magazine, as well as a professor of philosophy and chair of the Department of Humanities at Indian River Community College in Fort Pierce, Florida. He's the author or editor of many books on journalism, professional ethics, and philosophical counseling, including his 2007 book, The Last Days of Democracy, How Big Media and Power-Hungry Government Are Turning America into a Dictatorship. Yeah, that's been going on for 15 years now, at the very least. Elliot was the first prize recipient of the prior year's 2007 Project Censored Award for his investigative journalism on the corporate takeover of the Internet. It was our final installment in our series of interviews on Patreon that led up to this year's 4th of July. And you can hear all of those interviews when you sign up as a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. When you do, you get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts, which include new monologues by me, as well as classic archived interviews that are not available online anywhere else. 
and uh, the, what the, we were just featuring were past in the last few weeks on uh, Patreon were past conversations we had here on This Is Hell that the establishment media would likely call unpatriotic, even un-American, and definitely would not be aired at any time even close to the 4th of July via the establishment media or at any time for that matter. So you can find out all of that by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Again, this week's Patreon podcast will be streaming on uh, streaming and podcast on Thursday. Not Thursday, Friday. On Friday. So I believe we have Sebastian. It's time for another installment of Seb's Soapbox, our newest segment, where producer Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, gives his take on history. So take it away, Sebastian. I believe there you go. Seb's Soapbox. Okay, for the first time calling in, uh, I hope you can all hear me. So yeah, today I'm going to talk about how the United States is a singularly divided country. Uh, and not just because of the two-party system and because of partisanship or whatever the clowns in the news media are calling it. No, Americans are fundamentally lonesome people facing a system that was designed to foster loneliness, lonerism, and detachment and indifference to other people detachment from and indifference to other people. And the real kicker is that the American system sells those things as as virtues rather than as quite regrettable traits. American society is incredibly atomizing. It fosters egotism and insularity towards other people domestically and towards other countries or towards other countries' people, towards other nations in a foreign policy sense. This comes out of a whole variety of long-term trends, many of them rooted in American history and misreadings of that history. In modern American life, this goes from such things as credit ratings to health insurance, from the COVID response to the state of public transportation in the country. Americans are bred to be individualists. The individual, the single person, counts more than the group does, or so people are led to believe. Anything collective smacks of communism and of foreignness. Nothing matters more than the happiness of the individual person. And yet, Americans are lonely, isolated, miserable, and forced to be distrustful of their fellow countrymen because, well, they might bring their real estate value down or, you know, shoot them. They might use tax money that they haven't individually earned. They might try to tell them what to do. And nobody tells a real American what to do. Where does this radical notion of individualism come from, though? A lot of this has to do with an idea that Americans have about themselves and how American society is supposed to function. An early expression of this was the concept of the frontier and that frontier's impact on American life as it was expressed in the late 19th century by contemporary historian Frederick Jackson Turner uh, when he gave a presentation at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. There he presented the frontier thesis, um, or what became known as the Turner thesis, which laid out the reasons for the United States' success and the reason for its difference from European countries and that reason was the so-called frontier, where rugged individuals went and could do whatever the hell they wanted, taming the wilderness and develop new ideas about how to organize society made up of individual people. And this fairy tale myth developed by Turner uh, was that Americans were so great because they were these, you know, rugged, 
lone, like isolated individual. So didn't need anyone to make the wild land they found in the new world their own. Of course, this is all bull crap, top to bottom, and raises all the genocide Europeans did in America all through the ages. Uh, and it also erases the dependency of individuals on others. But as far as fairy tales go, Turner's had quite the influence on American society at large. People actually believed that these rugged individuals existed and that they represented an aspirational model to imitate. That individualism was good, actually. To some degree, there is a direct line from Turner's fairy tale to confirmed psychopath Ayn Rand and her elixir coterie of economist bloodsuckers. So historians like me were utterly powerless when, when we time and time again argued and proved that Turner was in fact full of crap. The fairy tale had quite the, staring, the, the, the staying power. A nation of egotists likes being told that them being self-centered pieces of crap is actually a good thing and actually the morally right position to take in life. So rugged, so overcoming all the obstacles of all by themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course, it's all based on nonsense and misreadings because was the frontier a place for lonely individuals, men going their own way? I mean, have you tried surviving on, all on your own, all by your lonesome anywhere in, in the wilderness? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, let me tell you, not really possible for a long time especially not while keeping your sanity intact anyway. Uh, and just look at the history of the westward expansion. You know, those ding-dongs and their covered wagons crossing the plains to either be Mormons in the desert or be annoying to local natives in Oregon. Those guys, the rugged individuals who traveled in large groups, relying on each other, founding whole new communities to be communal in the wilderness and or desert, Oh, but they didn't need no government. Hey, yeah, that's where you're wrong, bucko. You think the U.S. Army built all those forts along the westward trails for fun? Because without the army forts for resupplies and defense against the natives, those uh, defense against the natives whose friends those pioneers killed, whose game they hunted and whose drinking water they soiled, the westward trails of the manifest destiny wouldn't have had much success. The boosters, so people in the East, in the United States at the time, who had a vested interest in getting more people to cross the Rocky Mountains, even pleaded with the government to sell, uh, to send the more troops to the West to ensure that more of these rugged individuals could safely make it without any help from anyone. Um, you know, what signaled that Oregon could be settled as a continuation of the Western colonialist nonsense Americans had already done in the East? Women. Narcissa Whitman and Eliza Spaulding, the wives of two missionaries who went into Oregon to preach to the natives, were the first white women to cross the continental divide and arrive safe and sound in Oregon. And that meant that rugged individuals, no wait, that meant that families could cross over there, not individuals. Family groups could be translated, planted from the United States in the east to the new territories on the west coast. And once they arrived there, what did they do? Well, they were Americans, so they wrote a freaking constitution and made a government. Yeah, very, very individualistic and very libertarian, I guess. I don't know. Just like all fairy tales about the Wild West that supposedly made all Americans born gun nuts, this too is just all false all the time. But we're still living with a lot of the fallout from people in the past thinking that Frederick Jackson Turner was, you know, onto something. 
most of those small farm folk who set out west needing nobody doing their own little thing on the prairie by the way all failed miserably and went back east um, well granted not all of them you're not supposed to make sweeping statements like this but like mm, the overwhelming amount of them just failed and went back east because well it's not really possible to, to to do that uh and the one where you could make the best argument that they indeed were rugged individuals so the mountain man the trappers who went out into the wilderness to trap beavers well they too sought groups to survive just they sought native american groups to marry into and to show them the countryside and and the lay of the land to help them with their beaver pelts and uh yeah and i i guess that's uh that's all for for today's soapbox uh tune in on uh yeah uh, let's try on friday let's try 4 p.m this time maybe more people will be there uh for the extended Eurodance uh remix version of the soapbox you know the first uh college course i had uh, in history a history 101 course the course the instructor actually was teaching the class that turner's frontierism was genius and was something that we should all believe in while he was also giving us reading about the myth of George Washington so it was a very oddly contradictory class and then I just I just remember how many times I, when I worked in a very uh, fancy neighborhood here in Chicago old town neighborhood in a bookstore how many uh, very rich people would come in and ask if we had Ayn Rand's uh, virtue of selfishness or, or selfishness selfishness as a virtue uh, in uh, her book and I was just like you know you don't need to know that's a virtue you've already you're already embracing it just just move on with your life and enjoy it without annoying other people <sighs> yeah it's just like, and then as I said, like there is one. I, I I personally believe that there is a straight line from one to the other. Yeah. And uh, yeah, also to other um, issues. I will talk about on Friday. Excellent. All right. So yeah. we will hear from you on Friday, and yes. I will be seeing you. I don't know sometime in the near future. Sometime in the near future. Yes. Hopefully, knock on wood. We uh, wish you all all the best here. We are have we are having all our fingers uh and paws uh crossed <laughs> so, very awesome by the way what is what are the names of your cats uh nina that's mine that's and a very nice I, name for a cat I, I didn't name her i i she she arrived here with that name okay. and uh, my my wife's two boys are uh tucker and baxter oh i like that i like just having regular uh human names for cats instead of the yeah. freakish names that i have for my cats <laughs> All right, Sebastian, great to hear your voice. I will be talking right. to you soon. Yep, yep, yep. Again, Bye. tune in Friday at 4 o'clock Chicago time to our YouTube channel, This Is Hell Radio 1996, to hear the extended version of Sebastian's Seb's Soapbox. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Remember, this week's question from hell is, what are you blowing up in honor of America? <laughs> And we have a healthy response. Let's just hope nobody says like the Hoover Dam or yeah, gosh. something like that. I did I did a quick check. I think these are all right. All right. Laddie S quips my waistline. <laughs> Alex <laughs> T says this toilet at work right now, since you ask. <laughs> Yikes. Zach N says an onion and lemon inside a, pa- a plastic wrapped chicken. Brianna K says I have an answer, but I don't think it's Facebook appropriate. And then there's a monkey speak no evil emoji and a tennis emoji. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Kelly H. says, my <laughs> ego. 
<laughs> Fabio A says Wall Street. Oh, I guess maybe. Yeah, that might be a little problematic, yeah, Fabio. My bad. Thank God that Fabio has a fake name on there Facebook. Aaron D says rationality in jurisprudence. Oh, wait, the Supreme Court already did it. Never mind. <laughs> Got him. Chris C says the bond of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look me in the eye. <laughs> That's a They Might Be Giants lyric. Yeah. Laura A says my waistline. Again, uh, again yeah. yeah. We got a couple of people. Angela M says the patriarchy. <laughs> that's that's a common answer to a lot of different of these questions. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, can you blow up the patriarchy? I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, it would take a lot of blowing up, I right. think. Peter K says balloon animals <laughs> in the shape of Donald Trump's hair. <laughs> okay. Brian N says challenging question, which is in reference to the JPEG Sebastian included in this question, okay. which is the challenger. All right. Dan B says a doll. And finally, <laughs> James A says, I blew you up, but you blew my mind. Email your answer to this week's question from hell to chuck at thisishell.com. Actually, send it to thisishellradio at gmail.com. Thisishellradio at gmail.com because I won't be checking my email for a little while. Or post them on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. No. Facebook.com slash This Is Hell. Or DM them to us via uh, Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. I'm getting all this wrong. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support. Completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing today's show. Thanks to Sebastian for another edition of Seb Soapbox immediately following today's show. I'm heading to the hospital to do all the prep stuff that is necessary for my upcoming this uh, my upcoming surgery this Thursday, June 7th. That uh, prep stuff includes a COVID test as well as yet another blood draw. They told me that they want to know the, what blood type I am. I just had a surgery there. I, I, I'm pretty sure they're aware of what my blood type is. And I'm also certain that within the last, what, four months, my blood type has not changed. And if it has changed, you should send me to Walter Reed Hospital or the Mayo Clinic and have people do a lot of studies on me because I think I'll be the first human being whose blood has changed type. Anyway, following those tests, I, especially the COVID test, I must isolate myself in order to make certain I do not contract COVID-19 in the time between today's test and going under the knife on Thursday. You know, I don't even know if a knife is involved anymore. Which means this is the only entirely new episode of This Is Hell featuring a new interview never before heard here on This Is Hell. Uh, it's going to be our only uh, new, completely live new show this week. And the next live show isn't until Monday, July 18th, just under two weeks from today. If all goes well and the surgery is a success and my recovery progresses as expected, I'll be back again here on Monday, July 18th. Uh, and when we'll be you know, featuring a new full week of all new episodes. Until then, Sebastian Vupper, uh, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, they will be here playing past archived interviews, which they have handpicked for our, your listening pleasure. And there will still be new Seb Soapboxes next week, uh, this week in Rotten History, uh, later uh, this week, a new moment of truth later this week. So continue to stay tuned into This Is Hell 
throughout the next couple of weeks every day while I am not here. By the way, speaking of rotten history, John C. wrote to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com saying, Chuck, always enjoy listening to you and the members of your staff exploring the many corridors of hell. I was catching up on a past episode where when, when you covered anti-liquor crusader Carrie Nation and her activities in Kiowa, Kansas during this week in rotten history is when you were mentioning it. A vendetta by Carrie Nation, to be sure, but many people wrap themselves in up in one line or another from the Bible of their choice to try and polish their image. When you pointed out that Jesus was known to provide wine and was a drinker himself, how is it the Bible can be the source of anti-alcohol fanaticism? It rang a bell for me as I've attended many performances of the band Too Slim and the Tail Draggers from Spokane, Washington. They wrote a song exactly on that specific topic of Jesus and his taste for wine. Here are the lyrics. The first three lines are key. The link to the audio is below as well. Cheers, John in Medford, Oregon. John then attaches the lyrics to a song called Stoned Again, written by Timothy Langford, who I'm all of a sudden curious if he's related to John Langford of the Maycons, who I, I assume is uh, Spokane's Too Slim of Too Slim and the Tail Draggers. I'm pretty sure that must be Timothy Langford. Anyway, the lyrics go, The devil drinks his whiskey and Jesus drinks his wine. One is a sinner, the other is divine. Now tell me what's the difference when both of them are getting high. Thanks for the lyrics, John, in Medford, Oregon, and I am absolutely positive that is the only time lyrics by Too Slim and the Tail Draggers of Spokane, Washington have ever been cited here on This Is Hell. Uh, Dan, do you know what you will be airing this week on This Is Hell yet? Yes, I do. Lindsay will be in tomorrow spinning a hit from the vaults. On Thursday, I'll be in to play another classic. I've selected an interview with Ajama Nangwaya and Kali Akuno talking about Cooperation Jackson, a federation of worker cooperatives that they have down there in Jackson, Mississippi. And there will be an all-new Moment of Truth from Jeff Dorchin this week in another episode of Super Truth, Jeff connects the dots between the enlightenment and paranormal phenomena. And uh, that's really great. The Kali Akuno interview is really fantastic. Uh, if you are not following Kali Akuno on social media, you should. He posts really great stuff both on Twitter and on Facebook and wherever you address your social media needs. For those of you subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon, there will be new Patreon podcasts this week and next week with brand new monologues from me as well as classic interviews that are not currently available anywhere else online. But the only way you can hear those is, again, by subscribing to uh, our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Subscribers also get a special code word they can use to get a discount on all This Is Hell merchandise. Now available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And if you subscribe right now, you don't get just access to this week's and next week's and last week's Patreon podcast, but to all of our Patreon podcasts, over 200 of them now. The interviews we will be sharing on the next two Patreon podcasts will be our 5th of July 2003 interview with, oh man, Cindy and Craig Corey, parents of the late Rachel Corey, an activist with the International Solidarity Movement who was killed by the Israeli military earlier that year, and an interview from three weeks later when we spoke with filmmaker Bill Siegel, who joined us in studio to discuss his then-just-released documentary, 
the weather underground. Finally, we hope you will all join us on Saturday, July 23rd for the opening of This Is Art, brought to you by your friends here at This Is Hell, which is taking place during the 50-year celebration of the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's This Is Art opening during Carrie's 50th anniversary party happening on Saturday, July 23rd, bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.